Yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever woken up early and you think you have to go to work, but then you realize it's the weekend? Yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever had the scissors slide through the wrapping paper? Amazing, right? Yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever gotten a four-square frosted mini-wheat frosted on both sides? Yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever had your luggage first out of the baggage claim at the airport? Yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever woken up from a dream went back to sleep, and then picked up the dream right where you left off. Mind-blowing, right? An Old Testament professor of mine uh, once said, my mother passed away in August 2012. So now I can write a book on sex. Talk about awkward, right? When it comes to sex, parents and children have one thing in common. They desperately want to avoid the topic. Like children's Bibles are usually no help because they conveniently skip over things like Solomon's thousand wives and David's concubines. But the avoidance of sexual discussions means there's a deafening silence on the subject. And it's not just six-year-olds asking about foreskins and circumcision and what does it mean when the Bible says, and Adam knew his wife. You wouldn't believe how frequently I'm asked about biblical attitudes toward polygamy, having multiple wives, or prostitution, or rape, or adultery, or incest, homosexuality. Hopefully it's not because they're thinking, hey, This guy looks like he knows a lot about prostitution and incest. But who will speak into the silence and answer their questions? Unfortunately, often it's not the church. Yeah, parenting is cool, but have you ever had the sex talk? And I don't just mean the book with the body parts titled, It's Not the Stork, or What Makes a Baby? Parents avoid the subject of sex, and Christians, in general, do the same. And to make matters worse, when they finally do talk about sex, many Christian parents and leaders and pastors talk almost exclusively in negative terms. Sex is sinful, dirty, nasty, shameful. So if you've got churches and parents avoiding the talk about sex, well, that's not good. And then if when they finally do talk about it, it's only in negative terms, well, that's double not good. And to make matters even more worse, when the church does teach on sex and sexuality, and if it's not in negative terms, it tends to focus solely on the ideal. One man, one woman, together, forever. Which is good, but it's not sufficient, since the ideal is not often the reality. If someone in church gets divorced or commits adultery, we don't know what to do because people rarely talk about it. 
when someone is raped or sexually abused, even sometimes within church buildings, a tragic situation is made worse when it's ignored, avoided, or covered up. The truth is, when it comes to sex, people really want and really need to hear what the church has to say about it. And while parents and churches may avoid the subject of sex, our culture definitely doesn't. I mean, just hear some of the titles on some of the top shows on Netflix. Sex Life, Sex Education, Sexify, Dark Desire. It's actually a Mexican drama, Oscuro Deseo. <laughs> How about some of the top sellers on Amazon Books? Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker, Fifty Shades Freed. Our culture is unavoiding when it comes to sex. And actually, the Bible is too. The Bible talks about sex all the time. It's not uncomfortable with the subject. The Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy have chapters devoted to laws about sex. In addition to the sexual abuse of the Levite's concubine, judges record Samson's failed first marriage, his encounters with a prostitute, and a sexual relationship with Delilah. And the climax of Ruth. I'm going to ruin it for women's ministry here. The climax of Ruth is when she climbs into bed with Boaz in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet. Yeah. I'll let you how to interpret Esther's reaching out and touching the tip of the king's extended scepter. The book of 1 Samuel begins with the polygamous father of Samuel and then proceeds to inform readers that the pre priestly sons of Eli were sleeping with prostitutes there at the entrance to the, temple, the tabernacle. I mean, that's basically like uh, there in the church lobby. Adultery and prostitution are top images for idolatry in the prophetic books. And the entire Song of Songs is about sex. I, I could go on and on. There are plenty of options for breaking our silence about sex. It's not hard. I mean, it's right there on, on page one. Genesis 1.28. The freshly made humans have nothing to do, and so God gives them a task. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. So what's the first thing that God does to the humans in Genesis? And God blessed them. What's the, the first command then that God gives them? Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, if you're not clear on this yet, to be fruitful and multiply means to have Sex. That's just how it happens. For more details, ask your parents. The first command that God gives the, to humanity is to have sex. How much? Uh, enough to fill the earth, apparently. <laughs> and presumably, they don't have to accomplish this task on their own. They will have help along the way. But it still sounds like a lot. God's first words to the humans are essentially, have a lot of sex. He doesn't put off the subject like a lot of parents or pastors do, he brings it up during his first interaction with his young kids. 
And I think we can learn something from God's vocabulary, his willingness to open up a dialogue and conversation about this. Perhaps we should follow his example. Today we begin a, a brand new sermon series called Faith and Culture. And I'm sure you know, attending church on Sundays used to be a way of life for most Americans. But today, church has become less of a priority. Only two out of 10 millennials believe church involvement is important. 59% of millennials who grew up in the church have dropped out at some point. So finding the interaction and the intersection between faith and culture is critical. And it's not like faith is good, culture is bad. Because God uses culture to spread the message of faith. So both are necessary, and both we need to find an interaction, an intersection between. I mean, here's the sad truth. Most people don't care about church. But maybe the solution then is to identify the intersections between faith and culture and build bridges between Jesus and the world. As it turns out, that's exactly what Jesus did. He used the story of a mustard seed as a bridge to explain the kingdom of God. The story of a son turning his back on his father as a bridge to explain redemption and forgiveness. The story of a man abandoned and beat up on the side of the road as a bridge to explain mercy. Finding the intersection between faith and culture is critical, and here's what it does. It opens up a whole new dialogue. Yeah, church is cool, but... Have you ever talked about sex? Well, that's what we're going to do today. And as we do, I want you to know right off the bat, this is not the be-all, end-all message on sex. I mean, it's maybe just a conversation starter. So let's turn to it. I mean, there's a whole book dedicated to it, Song of Songs, with hit lines like, You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. How about your belly is a heap of wheat? Probably not the best line to your, repeat to your wife, though. Better stick with, your breasts are like two fawns, like twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Okay, maybe not with that long neck stuff, but you know, this is not just from the male perspective either. The woman, she speaks a line so steamy in chapter 5 that most English translations hesitate in this verse. His abdomen mm -hmm, is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires. All of this is sexual metaphor and erotic poetry. This doesn't belong in the Bible. Well, if you, if you think so, you're not alone. Throughout history, Christians have often taught a sex is bad theology. For instance, Clement of Alexandria taught that, that sex is sin unless it was done to beget children. Origen was so convinced of the evils of sexual pleasure that he castrated himself. And Chrysostom taught that Adam and Eve could not have had sex before the fall. And these weren't like crazy dudes either. They were, they were Leaders of the early church with so much leadership clout that we still remember their names and their teachings today. 
In the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with a church struggling with a bunch of sexual perversions. They had made their way into the church in Corinth, there on the coast of Greece. And Paul was once an enemy of the church turned Jesus follower. He's dealing with people who are having Christian sex orgies and others sleeping with their step-parents. In other words, not ideal. One of the teachings that had infiltrated the church as a result of this was a sex is bad theology. Like in, in, in relation to that, in against that, it would have been tempting, though, for Paul to tap into this sex is bad theology. Like, stop being perverse, stop having sex. But it's not how Paul responds. Instead, this is what he says. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. In other words, don't run from sex, but toward it. Run toward it in its proper context between husband and wife. The Corinthians had had wrongly begun to believe that it pleased God to completely avoid all sexual activity, but Paul encourages the exact opposite. He argues that the best way to combat a sex-is-bad theology is a healthy and robust sex life in its proper context. And that's where I think the Bible book Song of Songs is super. Song of Songs is a superlative. That means it's, it's like the best of the best. It's the very best of songs, a superlative, like King of Kings or Lord of Lords. It's the best of the best. It's super. The Song of Songs is so super that nobody ever preaches on it. It's also sometimes called the Song of Solomon, which could mean it's written by him or to him or about him. Remember the king with a thousand wives, right? But it's super. A series of love songs, poems with seven snapshots of a couple on their attraction, dating, courtship, marriage, intimacy, conflicts, romance, and commitment unto death. It's rated NC-17, but it's poetic, so no one really gets how sexual it is in nature. But I'll tell you what, when it's talking about figs, it's not talking about figs. When it's talking about gardens, it's not talking about gardens. When it's talking about mountains, it's not talking about mountains. But I'm going to spoil everything for you from the get-go. Song of Songs, in my totally biased opinion, should be interpreted in a threefold manner. The love between husband and wife, celebrating the sexual relationship God intended for marriage. Love between God and Israel, the covenant promised relationship where the wife represents Israel and the husband represents God. And then thirdly, Jesus and the church. The wife is the church and the husband is Jesus. So here we'll start with Song of Songs chapter 4. And remember, the man illustrates husband, God, Jesus, and the woman illustrates wife, Israel, church. And it gets awkward because here we are at the wedding reception. We're actually located inside the bridal chamber. And now in this culture, the husband would bring his wife to the wedding feast. And with all the guests present, they'd consummate their marriage in a nearby room. Awkward! And then they'd come out after three to seven minutes or more like 90 seconds, and everyone would applaud. Double awkward. 
Song of Songs, chapter 4. Here in the bridal chamber, silk sheets, rose petals, candles, whatever. Husband God, Jesus speaks. Look at you! So beautiful, my dearest. Look at you. So beautiful. And maybe you need to hear that today. God telling you. Look at you. So beautiful. Don't worry about what culture defines as beauty. Thin lips, wide lips, apple pear, hourglass, parallelogram, body type. I don't care. Look at you. So beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind the veil of your hair. Your hair is like a flock of goats as they stream down Mount Gilead. Wait, what? Your eyes look like birds and your hair looks like goats. Is that supposed to be a compliment? Well, actually, there was no better way to praise a woman's beauty in the ancient Near East than to tell her, babe, your eyes are doves. It means something like beautiful, gentle, and pure. But goats, your hair looks like goats running down Mount Gilead. Really? Sounds more like a bad hair day. But from a distance, imagine a flock of black goats at dusk descending the mountain. That would be, I mean, that's captivating. Like the woman's long, dark locks rippling and tumbling free. Sexy, right? Your teeth are like newly shorn ewes. So female sheep with a, a new haircut. Not white or black or brown or speckled but white as they come up from the washing pool. This means that her teeth are clean. All of them perfectly matched. Her teeth are straight, and not one of them lacks its twin. They're all there. Her teeth look like sheep, freshly washed and white. Husband God Jesus is seeing every little detail, and he's saying, you are beautiful. We haven't even made it past the mouth yet. And the husband God, Jesus, says, You're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Like a crimson ribbon are your lips. When you smile, it is lovely. Like a slice of pomegranate is the curve of your face behind the veil of your hair. So your mouth has, has a beautiful color and shape. And her cheeks are, are rosy with robust health, like the outside, not the inside, the outside of a pomegranate. Verse 4 says, like David's tower is your neck, splendidly built. <laughs> splendidly built neck there. A thousand shields are hung upon it, all the weapons of the warriors. So she's shimmering in jewelry. Necklaces wrap around her neck like a tower encircled by shields. From head to neck, the husband God, Jesus, continues to say, You're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Your two breasts are like two fawns, young deer, twins of a gazelle doe that graze among the lilies. So fawns are soft and lovable, but they're timid and shy creatures. So the husband God, Jesus, gently approaches his wife, Israel, church. You're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. 
before the day breeze blows and the shadows flee. It's poetic for this is going on all night long, baby. I will be off to the mountain of myrrh to the hill of frankincense. Like when I said, when it's talking about mountains, it's not talking about mountains. When it's talking about hills, it's not talking about hills. The mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense are metaphorical for her breasts. Myrrh and frankincense were expensive perfumes because the mountains and hills are precious. You're telling me this is all just for procreation? No way. The Bible is clear. Sex is not just made for popping out babies, but for pleasure. This is God's design. And rather than being anti-sex, God encourages sexual pleasure. You are utterly beautiful, my dearest. There's not a single flaw in you. You're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And skip down to verse 9. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. Weird to throw in that sister line there, in my opinion. But you have captured my heart with one glance from your eyes, with one strand of your necklace. You're beautiful, 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 and I love, love, love you. And it's one thing to interpret this as a love between husband and wife, but God and Israel, Jesus and the church, that's awkward. But God loves us so much, it is awkward. Maybe it's awkward to think of God as intimate or romantic in this way, but sex is a gift from God to be celebrated and enjoyed within the context of marriage. It's his design, his creation, his gift. And yeah, we've certainly squandered it and turned it into something decrepit. But if God is at the center of our lives, that means that God should be at the center of every single thing in our lives. And that means that God should be at the center of our sex lives. Sex can be worshiped to God. Awkward, right? Let me amend that statement, though. Sex should be worship to God. Since all life is worship, sex should be worship to God. Still awkward, but it is what it is. It's normal to ask the question, how is God involved in your life? But to ask the question, how is God involved in your sex life? Well, that's weird. <laughs> that, that, that's awkward. It's awkward for me even to talk about it. Why? First service, my in-laws are here. Second service, my mom's here. And well, it's awkward because we're getting vulnerable. Pulling back the covers. It's even more awkward if you're sitting next to your parents or someone that is new to church. Why are they talking about this? Pull, we're pulling back the covers, literally. Yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever included God in it? I think it's strange how far we've removed the gift of sex from the giver. Sex has become godless. Sex in our culture is primarily about self-gratification, self-pleasure, self-actualization. It's all a selfish endeavor. But the Bible teaches something, something entirely different and radical, that sex is other-centered a selfless expression where you join yourself to another person's soul, his or her life, their experiences, their failures, and their faults. There's something far deeper 
than a mere physical unity, something extraordinary and mysterious. Like we should never get naked and vulnerable with a person only physically without getting naked and vulnerable with them in every other way. Socially, economically, geographically, spiritually, and emotionally. To do anything else will always end in catastrophe. In a culture of hookups, swinging, sexting, pornography, and one-night stands, the Bible says to have sex with someone is to know them in every single way. Genesis chapter 2 says it, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, one flesh. The two become one in every way with only each other and only for each other with God at the very center. You might say, well, that that sounds so restrictive. Just look at the birds and the bees and other species of the animal kingdom. They don't stick with the same deadbeat. Well, actually, macaroni penguins, bald eagles, snowy owls, albatrosses, black vultures, swans, and turtle doves do. (laughs) 90% of all birds are actually monogamous having the same relationship for their entire lives. I don't know. It's probably just with the birds. I don't know. Maybe it's just an issue with the bees. But just think about fish for a moment. Fish are restricted to the parameters of water. And in it, they're free to flourish. If a fish tries to live outside of these restrictions, these parameters it dies a slow death. Now think about our culture. In the same way, when we learn to live within God's plan for proper sexual relations, we begin to experience life as it was originally designed for us. The restrictions, the parameters around sex don't exist because God is mean or limiting or or a killjoy. God loves sex and wants to maximize our pleasure and joy in His gift in the right way, in the right context. Sex isn't bad. Sex is a good thing. But it cannot replace God. While a sex is bad, theology is wrong and unbiblical, so is the opposite extreme. Sex is God. This sex is God worldview is, of course, nothing new. The Bible was written to people living in cultures of extreme sexual perversion, where people regularly engaged in premarital sex, extramarital sex, sexual slavery, temple prostitution, orgies, homosexuality, and various forms of sexual perversion. A sex is God thinking was as normal in the first century as it is today. But the form and accessibility of these things have, of course, evolved. And I think a sex is God outlook, it radically changes our cultural landscape. For instance, easy access to sex affects men's motivation to achieve other life goals. Given a choice between masturbating over online pornography and going out on a date with a real girl. That is to say, a girl who doesn't look like a porn star and doesn't show up to Starbucks wearing only lingerie. More and more young men say they prefer online porn. And as a result, we have a whole generation of men who have become demotivated and don't feel called to anything. Psychologists call it prolonged adolescence, and others have labeled it the Peter Pan syndrome. 
doing little more than masturbating and playing endless hours of video games while living at home with their parents and being unemployable. This prolonged adolescence, or Peter Pan syndrome, is a direct result of a sex-is-God worldview. Like, if sex is ultimate, and it's easily accessible, and no strings attached, a mere physical digital exchange, if that's all it is, we'll, we'll get ready for demotivation and no commitment in all sectors. And ladies, Oh, you thought you were off the hook? <laughs> I'll never forget looking at porn in seminary. It was porn for women, actually, in a Christian ethics course, nonetheless. You're like, where is he going with this? It wasn't the digital stuff, it was paperback. And my, my professor, she held up in her hands a book titled Porn for Women. It had the size and binding of a kid's book. And as she turned to page one, I thought, dear God. <laughs> well, there, pictured on page one, for all eyes to see a man sitting on a bed, folding laundry while holding a baby. <laughs> no, you relax for a while. I figured out how to fold everything one-handed. Page two, a man with rubber gloves and cleaning supplies. I like to get to these things before I have to be asked. And one more for good measure, a man in a minivan. Oh, look, honey. The NFL playoffs are today. I bet we'll have no trouble parking at the Arts and Crafts Fair. <laughs> Interesting how steamy this can get. Why? What, what is that? Uh, expectations, emotional needs, care, concern. But the, the, the statistics, the actual statistics on women and online porn use are actually very startling. According to the New York Times, one out of every three women watch porn at least once a week. Why? Because our culture says sex is ultimate or it'll unlock your deepest desires, but sex is not ultimate. It is not God. It is not the answer to life's greatest questions. And maybe the most important thing that can be said to a sex is God culture is that while sex is amazing and perhaps one of the best pleasures that life has to offer, there's greater joy that'll one day retire it. Like what? Probably not the word you want to hear when it comes to sex. Retire? I mean, if you're working in the oil fields, or clocking 40-odd years in a cubicle, retire equals freedom. But sex? Retire? Some people already think that's what marriage is. Just think culturally. There's the assumption that marriage is where a wild and free sex life goes to die. Contrary to popular opinion, though, married couples statistically don't have worse sex than singles, but better. 40% of married couples, married people have sex twice a week compared to 20% of single and cohabitating men and women. 
Over 40% of married women say their sex life is emotionally and physically satisfying compared to 30% of single women. 50% of married men are physically and emotionally content versus 38% of cohabitating men. Of all sexually active people, the most physically pleased and emotionally satisfied are married couples. The myth of our culture is that the single life is a life of great sex and the height of pleasure, but it is a lie. Marriage isn't where sex goes to die, but hopefully with the right conditions, thrive. But the myth of the church is that marriage is everything. It's the be-all, end-all, but it is a lie. Because for both marriage and sex, there is a greater joy that will one day retire it. You know, Jesus didn't talk about marriage much. Unlike many pastors and church leaders today, Jesus never taught a romantic relationship seminar. He never did marital counseling. He never performed a wedding, even though he did provide a lot of alcohol for one. The fact that Jesus didn't focus much on marriage should warn us not to be obsessed with it. When Jesus did speak about marriage, his message was not only surprising, but aimed at removing the idolatry from it. Of course, husband and wife should both be constantly self-sacrificing, surrendering, loving in every way. But realize marriage is just a pointer to an eternal reality, but is itself not that reality, it is not forever. In Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, Jesus says, In the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In other words, in heaven, we will not marry. We will not be married to like, the spouse you're maybe currently married to. Don't say amen. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> marriage is momentary, though. A brief blessing, a precious one, but not a permanent one, to have never married, to have never married is not a tragedy. Otherwise, Jesus' life is a tragedy. Tragedy is craving the perfect marriage so much that we make a God out of being married. Marriage does not and should not meet all our needs. It does not complete me. It should not be an idol it should not take place of Jesus himself. Marriage is for a moment. So is sex. There's a greater joy that will one day retire it. You may think, oh, I, I, I love my, my wife. I love my husband. You know what? You know what's the greater joy that will retire it? Marriage and sex is Jesus himself. Holy, completely, eternally. And there's something far greater than marriage, something far greater than sex that awaits Jesus for eternity. And I think how we live in our marriages and in our singleness will show if Jesus is our supreme treasure or not. Yeah, marriage is cool, but have you ever considered how staying single can be a great move for the kingdom of God? In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about how marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth seemingly never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom purposes. 
And while we often idolize marriage in the church, I think we should take note of the very simple reality that two of the big dogs of the New Testament, Paul and Jesus, both chose to remain single to serve God better. Some scholars think Paul may have been married, but was a widower when he wrote 1 Corinthians. In our teaching about Christian marriage, why in the world have we avoided the examples of Paul and Jesus? Well, because the church tends to make an idol out of marriage. Ironically, Jesus' single status would have made him unwelcome in many Christian events today. A single male in his 30s? That's a negative for the couple's small group. Definitely not the speaker for family camp. A weekend to remember marriage retreat? Scratch that. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, that most Christians should remain single, only the top dogs. I'm saying that marriage shouldn't be idolized. Don't idolize it so that people who are single for one reason or another, just like Jesus and Paul, don't feel ostracized within the church. Singles should never feel excluded in a group of people who are following a single Savior. You who are single are not incomplete or less than by any means or measure. Never. So we in the church need to make sure that those conditions are made so that those who are single always feel accepted and always feel welcome. So Jesus didn't talk about marriage much. But he did have a habit of calling himself the bridegroom. Jesus was a single savior, but he also had a spouse. What? If Jesus is the bridegroom, well, who's the bride? The church, his followers. And as his bride, we must devote ourselves entirely to fully serving and following him. I think that's why it's essential to make your relationship with God your highest priority. And if you're married, it's got to be highest, way higher than your spouse. Here's why. Loving Jesus as highest priority will make your marriage far stronger than if your marriage was your first priority. It sounds crazy, but maybe stop focusing on your marriage. Stop focusing on your singleness. Start focusing on something bigger, on God. Relentlessly focusing all your energy on your eternal relationship with God. As you do it, it'll happen naturally. You cannot help but be transformed, renewed, restored. A better husband, a better wife, a better single person for the kingdom of God. It'll, it'll, it'll add all of this to your life. It'll happen naturally. You will be a new person because God says you are a new creation. Oh, and it'll also make you vulnerable too. And now vulnerability is a scary thing. And unfortunately, we are pretty dang good at scarring one another screwing up the whole vulnerability thing. Sexual trauma, abuse, and infidelity can suffocate any chance at vulnerability. It takes huge trust and healing to be vulnerable again. I want you to know that, that if that is you today, it is possible to be vulnerable again. And this church is packed with people who have overcome I want you to know that with God, you don't have to worry about him being anything other than trustworthy. Like, yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever tried vulnerability? 
Imagine standing naked before God. That would be vulnerable. That would be awkward. But wait till he tells you you're beautiful, 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 and I love, love, love you. It takes vulnerability to both confess and receive love. And there's no question about how much God loves us. He loves us so much, it's awkward. But then how do we love God in response with everything? Whole heart, soul, mind, strength entirely. Well, first we let him in. Okay, God, I'm vulnerable, I'm open, unlatched, unlocked to you completely. In Song of Songs 416, the woman Israel Church responds, unlatched, unlocked, vulnerable. Stir, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its perfumes flow. Let my love come to his garden. Let him eat its luscious fruit. We let God in completely, and then we, we pursue him completely. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Upon my bed at night I sought, that is, I desired the one my soul, my spirit, my life, my being, my everything loves. I sought him, but I could not find him. Let me get up and, and circle about the city and the streets and the open places. Let me seek the one my soul loves. I searched for him. But I could not find him. The guards around the city found me. And I asked them, have you seen the one my soul loves? It was a little while after I passed by them when I found the one my soul loves. And get this, I grabbed him and I did not let him go. This is a complete role reversal. The man is supposed to pursue, right? But this is shocking. Wife, Israel, church is redeemed by aggressively, aggressively desiring and chasing after God. I think this is how we ought to yearn after God, to grab God and never let him go. But yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever tried chasing after God? Sex is good. It is not God. But instead of keeping people away from God, sex should draw us closer to Him. And maybe, just maybe, by the way that we talk about and view and honor and celebrate sex, perhaps we can help shape a culture to see not just the gift, but the giver who is madly in love with all of us. And that, in the end, might be the most radical idea of all. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, that you tell us you're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I love, love, love you. Help us to know the truth of that despite what our world and our culture might say, you continue to say every day and every night and every moment, you're beautiful, 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 and I love, love, love you. And so God, I pray that we would, would just be a mirror of that to this world, that we would be a mirror of the love that we receive from you out into this world we would tell people you're beautiful and you are loved and help us to see that in you God may we be better in our marriages better in our singleness better in our, our widowhood 
Help us to be passionate world changers for you, Jesus, who chase after you by the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. We give you our lives completely, radically. They are in your hands to have your way. In Jesus' name.